there's an adversary, a human interactive adversary who will adapt to the things that you put up. And, and so it's a competition. And so you have to love that competition um, in order to really love being in this business. Welcome back to the Zero Hour brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. 2020 has been a seismic year for businesses as they cope with getting online, getting remote, and also just dealing with an unprecedented wave of ransomware attacks. Um, so we really wanted to understand a little bit more about how they're balancing risk and how they're planning for the future. So we invited Mike Convertino to share his thoughts. Uh, his street cred here is impeccable. He started in the Air Force um, and he moved on to the private sector with stints at such places as CrowdStrike, Early Days, F5 Networks, CISO of Twitter, and now at Resilience, helping mid-market companies understand the gaps in their security and how to plan adequately for risk. So uh, without further ado, let's get into it with Mike Convertino. Mike Convertino, wait, welcome to the Zero Hour. We're really excited to have this conversation. Thanks, George. It's, uh, it's good to be here with you. Yeah, so you have quite the storied career. Um, hoping you could give us a, a brief tour of your journey from Air Force into the private sector at CrowdStrike, F5, even Twitter, mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then we'll catch up to the present. Yeah, um, so actually the way I got here was very, <laughs> very complex and circuitous. Um, when I was growing up, uh, information security wasn't a uh, discipline really. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, computers, there were no, uh, not until later in my childhood were there actual personal computers, right? I'm old right. enough to do that. Um, the, uh, the way I got started in this whole thing, and I didn't understand it at the time that it would lead to this place, but um, was I was a phone freaker, which is an old concept. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Manipulating the phone system to get it to do things that it wouldn't otherwise do, um, which landed me in hot water in high school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was really fun to create little boxes that would manipulate the phone system. And, and then in high school, I created a box that um, manipulated a local private branch exchange, PBX. Hmm. and um, um, for a project in a class. Um, but uh, the, the teacher did not appreciate that. <laughs> and so I got a trip down to the vice principal's office for discipline. <laughs> and uh, uh, flanking me on either side of me as I was waiting were the Air Force and the Army recruiters. And it, to be honest with you, could have gone either way. <laughs> but, uh, but I had no way to pay for college. And so that's how I got an ROTC scholarship. And I went through college as an electrical engineer, minored in computer science and math. <clears throat> and then um, was basically trained to be a chip designer. Um, oh, okay. Um, but it, my first projects were encryption uh, chips. <laughs> and so that led me to um, be of interest to people at NSA when I came to active duty after I graduated. Um, and every, yeah, NSA is all about cryptology. That's right. And um, so I learned a lot there on my first tour there. Um, then I went into a series of different um, 
normal assignments, but with excursions over into special things like arming the predator drone. Right. That this happened like back in Bosnia. Okay. Um, when we were doing that, and and not many people think of it being that old, but it is. Um, yeah, I I don't think that would have been on my uh, radar, so to speak, during that particular conflict. So I like to think of myself because of all those special, I did a bunch of those special projects sprinkled in through my career with visits back to NSA and information operations. Um, but anyway, um, it culminated in my last assignment, which is the commander of the 318th Information Operation Group, now the Cyber Operations Group. It's the only one in the Air Force. Um, and it does what its name says, right? Information operations, which is, you can think of it as fake news now on Facebook, right. <laughs> right? combined with hacking. So um, when I retired from there in um, 2011 or early 2011, I decided um, to go work here in the Seattle area for Microsoft as the senior director of network security and did that for about two years. And that was super interesting. Um, caught some bad guys and, and um, and really learned a lot about how commercial things were done that way. I'd been an offensive person. That's right. And now I had to defend. Um, my offensive orientation really helped me in that. It really did. Um, I mean, there's some full circles there, right? From freaking to encryption. So that's the offense to the defense and then back to the offense and then back yeah. to the defense. Yeah. Um, and and that's what, this is what happened throughout my military career and has happened um, in my commercial career after I retired. Um, so, um, and then while I was at Microsoft, it wasn't long before I was approached by George Kurtz and Dmitry Perovich from, from uh, CrowdStrike. <clears throat> they were leaving McAfee to, to create CrowdStrike. And I was an early employee there. Um, I hoped to open the office here in, in the Seattle area. Um, did many things, created what's now known as CrowdStrike Overwatch, which is the managed security service that'll run uh, CrowdStrike Falcon products for customers. And uh, it, it was the impetus for that idea because you saw that there were enterprises that just didn't have the bodies to do the work? Like they, you know, they recognized the need for security, they just didn't have they, the specialty? They, yeah, sometimes, uh, yes, uh, in, in point of fact, yes, there are many that didn't have the bodies um, because they, mainly I think because they couldn't afford them and there are too few. Mm. I think the two are related, right? Like the market, there aren't enough uh, potential hunters, uh, threat hunters in, in intrusion analysts in the world. Um, it's weird so, that that still seems to be the case. I mean, that was years ago and like- yeah, It still you know, is. That, that's a continued shortage. It, you know, I think, I mean, it is, it, we've tried to certify, right, people, there are many um, attempts at certifications for intrusion analysts, to, but to be honest with you, <laughs> um, it's more like my journey through through my career, right, that that's not, you don't create one by certifying them, right, right, I, I really think it's more art than science, and there's certainly science involved in it for sure, but, um, but the creativity that's necessary is the same kind of creativity that the bad guys use, right? Um, and so creativity does meet creativity. It is a, 
And in general, I like information security because of this. It is a human enterprise, right? It is a it is a digital conflict. It's a human conflict. That's right. In in um, you know in IT in general, there's usually a incontrovertible um, and clear reason for something going awry, right? Like you may not be able to see it as a person who bought a Cisco router or a Cisco switch, but somewhere in that switch, somebody compiled, you know, compiled the code or built the hardware that's causing the problem. And it's kind of static, right? Mm -hmm. Like it is what it is. Um, and so given the right people and the right knowledge and information, you can find out what it is. But that's not really true of information security because in addition to people, process, and technology that we have that we run, which is the ITIL kind of layout that we've all known and loved for years, mm -hmm. people, process, and technology in equal and balanced measure, right, to run things, um, there's an adversary, a human interactive adversary who will adapt to the things that you put up. And, and so it's a competition. And so you have to love that competition um, in order to really love being in this business, right? Yeah, um, and, and increasingly the adversary is also organized and professionalized, right? It's that's from right. the days of the 90s where it was sort of like lone wolf stuff. Now it's like somebody's job, like you yeah. know, they are employed by a syndicate or they are a self-starter and you know, they have their cup of coffee, see the kids off business. to school and they sit down and they, yeah. you know, scan for remote desktop ports and try yeah. to find ways in. It's a business, but it's it's a startup. <laughs> right. right. So, <laughs> so it's agile, right? So, yeah. um, you know, died in the world companies um, that have things to defend, um, find it difficult to keep up with that. Plus, um, in many respects, it's still true that the offense has the advantage, right? It, it has, it only has to be right once. That's right. Um, in order to get in, and then it needs to be right once again um, in order to move laterally, which is easier once in, yep. um, typically. And I, I just think that the, the business of information security is comparatively mature compared to the business of information insecurity. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And I, I think, yeah, you bring up a good point in terms of having to just be right once. And, and while a security team has a whole bunch of other things to do during the day, meetings to go to, whatever, like that's all I got to do. It's just keep banging those ports or yeah. keep sending those emails and, until, until someone opens it. Somebody will bite, yeah. And then, so, I mean, as defenders, it does behoove us to essentially do a layered layered defense, which I know is cliche, but it really does matter. So, so let me just mm -hmm. give you an example, like in the case of, well, any sort of malware that would be laid in, whether it's payload later or dropper later becomes um, a ransomware payload or a backdoor Trojan or whatever have you. Um, like a credential stealer or whatever. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what the payload is, but the, the getting in. Um, a lot of times the way people get in is like you just mentioned, email. Um, so we can train people um, and that have as, has a certain efficacy level, right? Um, which is okay, but not amazing mm -hmm. all the time, right? In other words, uh, 
be critical and, and examine the emails, like examine the header, uh, not just the screen name, you know, check out the actual underlying email, take a look at the certificates. Um, hopefully your enterprise has uh, labeled things as from an external entity so that when yeah. you get an email from your CEO and it says it's from an external entity, right. you know, yeah. it makes it easier. Um, so there, so we go through this training thing, but, but frankly, again, if you only have to be right once on the offense, there's going to be somebody that probably clicks. So, so we do that, but I think one of the biggest ways to prevent, um, you know, email based um, insertions or compromises um, is to filter, right? Yep. Products like Proofpoint and Cisco, um, Ironport and a bunch of others um, are all great products. I mean, like at one company that I was at, um, after we strengthened and implemented a bunch of different things like DMARC yeah. um, and, and the like, um, DMARC, DKIM, a bunch of a bunch of different things, and we erected Cisco Iron Ports. Um, we found that almost ninety eight percent of all mail hitting the gateway was spam or malicious <laughs> that we knew right. right off the top, right? So right. think about that. That's a lot of mail that is trash, right? Yes. So it's it, it's interesting because it's an efficiency thing for a company too. If you're blocking 98% of the mail and getting rid of things that people would otherwise not just click on from an information security point of view, but have to look at from a company efficiency point of view, um, you're saving in both cases, right? Well, yeah, and it's also, it's a probability, I don't want to say a game to make light of it, but you've oh, no, it's dramatically game. reduced, you know, just the number of chances and then you can focus on areas that yeah. you know, I gamify everything, right? Like that's my first line of defense coming in is just block most of the things coming in. And then you have your users that are trained and somebody will probably click. So even when they do click, what's the next line of defense on that box? That's right. Um, an endpoint capability that's advanced enough to notice that this is an anomalous activity that's a bit trying to be executed on that machine once the person clicked and blocks it, right? That's like the last line of individual mm -hmm. PC defense at that point. Um, and so that, I mean, that comes in many forms, right? There are antivirus programs, there are EDRs, endpoint detection and response platforms. Um, but I mean, all of them have something in common and that is, or two things in common, they block things <laughs> that they know about or that they feel are feel are anomalous mm -hmm. and um, and get into machine learning and AI and heuristics and as well as signatures, right? Just using all the things. Um, and then, so in addition to blocking though, they should yelp, right? They should report back to the SIM that something anomalous happened or something bad was attempted, right? And that goes into an analytical complex. That's right. Which, which should um, automatically loop back as in like this in industry we call SOAR, right? Security orchestration and response. So yep. that should be like automated, right? Like it yes. sees something anomalous, it should go bang on and spread it out to everybody's PC, right? Go grab the sample, take a hash, push it onto everybody's PC or, um, 
pass the information about what process was injected or initiated to every PC so that it can be blocked. Yeah. So, so you went from kind of the offense into the private sector. And then, uh -huh. you know, if we talk about CrowdStrike F5 networks, kind of on the vendor side, over to yeah. Twitter, it's not sort of platform side or client side. Yeah. But so, what, tell us about your new role at Resilience Security, because it feels like, Mm -hmm. a slight permutation in the offense defense you know it's yeah it, you're right it kind of goes back and forth my career does so when i left crowdstrike i went to f5 as you pointed out started off as CISO, but had um basically a copy of the source code for the security products of the company mm -hmm. um, and i had some devs on my uh, information security team and so we took that um that fork off of main you know, speaking in in uh, yeah. in uh, programming terms, and we spend like over a year and a half modifying it. Um, and so now, like at the, a year and a half later, it really didn't resemble Maine at all. Um, and so, so to give you an idea, I mean, we were modifying F5's firewall code, mm -hmm. um, their WAF code, um, their SSL VPN code, um, just a series of all their security products, right? And um, in the end of that, um, and I say it's the end because we, we were attacked, and, but we, the new code were, was the thing that caught, caught the, the issue. So needless to say, they got joined back to Maine. <laughs> um, and uh, and um, then they asked uh, some of my staff and I to, to go off and head up um, CTO for um, security products. Uh, over at F5. So, and then after a while that, uh, yes, Twitter called. And that was, uh, again, back to pure defense out of vendor land over mm -hmm. into defense. Um, and that was a different kind of defense. That was actually hearkening back to my time as the 318th Information Operations Group Commander, right? Because it was both information security uh, as well as, you know, traditional stuff, as well as it intermixing with information operations, right? Like what, what was being said on the platform. Yeah. It's a very tough job, um, tough environment for information security, I think, as has been evidenced in recent uh, months, right? That's right. Yeah. Days. <laughs> yeah. And so, I don't know, about it, seven months after I left there, um, they had an issue in July um, around authentication and that's well uh, publicized. Um, which doesn't surprise me. Um, and, um, and then, uh, you know, yeah. So I think that was an interesting uh, learning for me just, just to see how things went after, um, after we'd established some things and how they, how they didn't go well too. Um, and that's another thing about this business. It is um, in general, <laughs> there are gonna be, it, it is like, game you mentioned mm -hmm. a game it, it is a game in some respects it's a serious game it's serious business but you do win and you do lose right there are cases uh, where you um, where you will be intruded upon um, but you know there are a lot of things so what I'm saying is response and recovery count just as much as prevention we spend a lot of time preventing which is worth, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That's true. 
but sometimes you need the pound of cure, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, uh, and it shouldn't be neglected um, at all, right? So having like a really great um, incident response firm who's learned in the things um, and has lots of experience in the things, the uh, threats that would you know, be most likely uh, felt by your company, I think is important. So if you're likely to get hit by ransomware, well, you better have an IR firm that knows and how to deal with cryptocurrency, um, crypto in general, right? Um, and is connected in that community. And then the other thing you better have um, for ransomware is uh, ironclad, uh, nearly constant and up-to-date backups um, that are offline, right? So that you can actually restore without paying the ransom. So the RF right. firm come in, eradicate them, roll in and restore things, right? Um, mm. Those things, um, it's really important. I mean, like people, people do keep copies of their license, uh, your, your right. vehicle license and your passports and, and stuff for a reason, right? And the right to do that. Because if you get robbed, right? And it's your only, <laughs> it's, you don't even know what your passport number is. What good is that? You know, you can't, you can't recover from that very easily. It makes it harder. It takes longer. And so, uh, so tell us about resilience and kind of the, the new permutation there, which is kind of, I think, as I understand it, analyzing the risk mm -hmm. that is sort of endemic inside of an organization to try and, you know, come up with strategies and also just reduce that when cooperating with insurance companies and such. Yeah, so um, resilient security helps underwriters evaluate uh, companies, like you just said, in, in mm -hmm. a couple of different ways. I mentioned people, process, and technology. I mean, at a very high level, that's essentially what we do. We, we gauge against peer companies, um, a, a potential insured, um, in terms of the technology they use, the, the processes they run, and the people they have on staff or supporting them as vendors, right? Um, so that's one thing that we do. Um, and the other thing we do, I just talked about, and that is help companies um, through insurers um, essentially respond and recover uh, from, um, from incidents. Um, in the course and prior to doing the latter though, you know, before we actually get to a response or a recovery, we do advise uh, clients, right? We're able to tell them, hey, listen, this is what we found about your company. Um, hopefully it matches what your perception is of the state of security at your company. And if it doesn't, we should definitely have a discussion. <laughs> right. right? Um, <laughs> and then, and then um, we, uh, we have, you know, a, a bunch of different vendors, uh, like partners, vendor partners that we have uh, on board that, that can go to, and you know, for each hazard that's being insured or um, each problem that we see in, in somebody's infrastructure, um, we have a, you know, a recommended vendor partner. And I uh, find that interesting because I'm sure every business is very different, right? If you are working with a business that has a huge vendor supply line, right? They're 
their vulnerability to third party risk is going to be higher than, you know, a, a manufacturer. It's more like an ICS environment or something like that. So um, that's, that's a good individuated approach. So my understanding is that resilience serves and, and helps out a lot of mid-market companies. Are you seeing any particular trends in the challenges that mid-markets face? I mean, to my mind, it's like they're facing the same dangers as enterprise teams, but they're trying to do it with fewer people uh, yeah. at the risk of so sounding obvious. I, yeah, that's where I put my bad guy hat on, <laughs> right? <laughs> so if you're a bad guy and you're sitting in St. Petersburg, Russia, right? You're very well educated, but there are no jobs, right? And yeah. you're an enterprising young um, person and you need to make money and you want to make a lot of it, right? You're enthusiastic. Who are you going to attack? Are you going to attack a wealthy company who has very extensive investments in information security, i.e. hires guys like me, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Who have experience in offense. Um, or are you gonna go after somebody who can barely afford a team or doesn't have a team in the mid-market but has some money, right? That you can demand. You can go through a lot of the latter companies, right? Yep. And so, so it starts off with a, a kind of mental assessment on who's most able to defend themselves um, and yet has money, right? It's kind of like prospecting for oil <laughs> right? Right. In, in a lot of different ways. And so that's, their, so that's the mind of the hacker, right? Or that's why they're going after the mid-market so heavily, right? And they're not wrong. The reason that they're not wrong is they know what we know from our most recent study that says roughly in the mid-market, which we call running from 500 million to around 2 billion, a little bit higher mm -hmm. um, in annual revenue, <clears throat> you've got uh, companies, well, the top quarter uh, you know, of revenue companies, you know, the ones toward 2 billion, the top quarter there have somebody appointed as responsible for information security. Sometimes that's a director, sometimes VP, sometimes the person is called a CISO, sometimes they're not, but only the top quarter have that, <laughs> right? The rest of them don't have anybody designated. And whenever somebody, you know, when, whenever nobody's in charge, well, nobody's appointed, therefore nobody's really in charge of it. Right? And it becomes a crazy pickup game, episodic at best. Um, and people do things, but it isn't, isn't likely to go well. And it certainly isn't likely to respond to an attack very quickly. Right, because right. they also may be more preoccupied with just keeping the infrastructure running. That's right. They're Basically IT. like, yeah, they're IT network administrator right. sort of thing. Oh, uh, they're upgrading. Like right now, they're busily mm -hmm. putting in application portals. Uh, secure, mm -hmm. hopefully, secure application portals <laughs> um, so that their people can remote in, right? right? So, and their customers can remote in in, in some cases. So, um, I, yeah, they got a lot of um, dogs at the door uh, demanding their time just from an infrastructure point of view and a company survival economic point of view. Um, and so it, it is interesting that those folks when they don't have, I found that when they don't have a person appointed as head of security, whatever they're termed, um, 
they are very grateful for our consultations. You know, I mean, like um, they um, they are open arms. Uh, you know, in general, on the idea that um, they get some of our time, uh, a couple hours of our time, they get an evaluation that, that's already born of their insurance policy, right? So it's already done, but they get an explanation of it, and they get recommendations for vendors and what to do about the. For, and even just having a just having a plan instead of like, right. you know, catch as catch can, put out the fires as they come. Oh yeah. no, if I just work through this process. It's a prioritized to-do list in effect. Uh, some of it, sometimes, as you mentioned, it, it includes um, like non-technical items, process items, we call people process technology again, um, like the third party ven uh, vendor evaluation process. You know, you should have service level agreements, Mm -hmm. responses um, in those. Um, there should be lots of security demands in those, right? There should be uh, reporting on the security in those, right? And so, yeah, and I understand how those teams would be incredibly grateful because that's kind of putting their minds at ease or at least giving them direction. Mm -hmm. But in, you, in doing those, uh, assessments, does it become increasingly clear to the leadership of those companies that maybe they do need ahead of, you know, like that that's a serious gap that needs to be taken? Yeah, uh, I think that's my goal. Like, that's why I left Twitter and came here, right? Is because number one, even when you're at the top of that range, right? You mm -hmm. still feel like Sisyphus pushing the rock up right. the hill, right? And anytime you let go, it's going to roll you over, right? <laughs> but um, internally, that's how it goes. But in a lot of ways, when we advise we're consultants, and we all know about the mystique of the consultant. I mean, a consultant can come in and say a bunch of things your people have been telling you for three years, right? Um, but suddenly you listen to them, right? It it does become apparent um, during the consultation. We try to have some senior leaders there too, um, and the other. The other part that becomes apparent is we do a, um, a small exercise, a tabletop exercise, which, where it becomes super apparent. And obviously we like to um, exercise um, the, what we would have considered the most likely um, scenario for them based on threats and the condition of their infrastructure, right? So um, in many cases, interestingly, that's business interruption. That yep. Maybe once it hard. once it affects the the revenue stream, yeah. that becomes a business priority. Yeah, I mean, like it, it Twitter. It was really apparent to me that <clears throat> the tweets needed to flow. Uh, if the tweets flowed, the ads flowed, and if the ads flowed, the money flowed. <laughs> so, so as long as that was true, um, you know, I don't want to say little else mattered. So privacy certainly did matter. But um, but the money flow is pretty paramount. And yes, it's interesting you should bring that up. So we are recording days after the U.S. presidential election, and one of the headlines I saw this morning from the New York Times from Kevin Roos was, uh, I have it right here, actually. It was, on election day, Facebook and Twitter did better by making their products worse, right? So by slowing the flow of information, which is, not mm -hmm. been their business model to date. They were actually able to stymie 
quite a bit of uh, mis and and disinformation. So that's a that's an interesting. Yeah, what's what's interesting about that is you need to understand the ad valuation model. Mm -hmm. So it isn't just the number of interactions, right? Whether or not something goes viral, but I mean that is certainly a thing. And there and there are different different interactions are valued differently too. Like right. retweet with comment or comment. That's a much higher value than just hitting the like button, mm -hmm. uh, right? And by higher value, I mean um, it shows a level of engagement to the advertisers, um, and therefore you can charge more for ads. Right. Um, but there's also another factor, and I think this is why um, Twitter and Facebook did better by quote making things worse or harder, um, is time on the platform. How long? Mm -hmm. To do you know does do does a user spend on the uh, on the platform? So it's number of users, daily active users. It's um, the level of engagement, right? The that value proposition that I mentioned between comments or just hitting a like button, and the amount of time that they spend on the platform. And time, especially, is true because if they're still staring at the screen, even if they're not quote interacting and clicking on an ad, they're seeing an ad. And they're seeing it for a longer time. Right. the The attention economy is is real. Like the valuation of that time right. spent on. Yeah. Yep. Um, so so that's why they, they, you're right. I, I have no doubt that that's true. That they made more money. Yeah. Um. So I want to I want to pivot back to that study that you had mentioned. So um, when I was going through that study, I also what struck me is that you know, three quarters of CISOs believe they can't get the insurance that they need, especially for cyber extortion, particularly, um, but also that they are frequently advising, but not actually the decision makers on the insurance policies, right? Sometimes it's the CFO or the CIO. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in this dynamic, especially in this new digital workspace, which seems to be our foreseeable future, and you had different lines of business trying to quickly adopt different cloud applications in order to just get business done about the, I don't want to say this is the push and pull between who's responsible for the technology. So for example, sales wants to use WhatsApp to drive sales in Brazil. That's their channel, but all of the risk was kind of put on the security team, even though they, they may not have provisioned the channel or wanted to, Right. And so it's like a, they can't get the coverage they want, but they also don't have a say in the coverage. It just feels like it's still at the enterprise level, we're not leaders are not talking to one another or coordinating kind of the risk ownership and the responsibilities. Do you have any any take on that? Yeah, I think um, I think communication is is key. Right. And sometimes mm -hmm. communication means I have to embed one of my people with you. All right. <laughs> Or, um, or um, the responsibility needs to become more diffuse and pinned on those business groups, right? In other words, each business group could wind up with a risk index of their own making, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so it's, it's an interesting thing. And we've seen the rise of the quote BISO, Business Information Security Officer. Um, which really kind of characterizes the latter. So that individual <clears throat> reports to the business group head, but, um, but is responsible 
for the security of that business. And um, it's, you know, global contribution, you know, to overall risk in the company, right? So then the CISO, the actual CISO, overall the, you know, dotted line BISOs essentially is trying to coordinate, he, he or she and his, his staff are trying to coordinate, like, what is the, what is the overall risk, you know, in its totality, but also the risk of interconnecting these businesses um, and, you know, central system security, things like what does the company email system look like and so on and so forth. So um, it's a complex thing. It's not, it's not easy. It, it really is about people and relationships. These divisions yeah, are awesome for hackers, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for example, we were talking to one company and, you know, the IT team was under pressure to enable remote work. So they provisioned Microsoft Teams. Great. You know, that's an enterprise license. Wonderful. And then it was like months later that compliance realized they had no idea what was going on inside of those chats. So it's like, do, do they own the risk? Does IT own the risk? Because they signed the SOW, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. it's, it seems that that's still not being determined or sussed out in advance of provisioning the software. Right, in this kind of, uh, I don't like the term rogue IT, but in the <laughs> way it is. I mean, it's not really rogue if a business, you know, be right. sanctions it. So we shouldn't really use that term. By the same token, it's, um, it's, uh, it is a narrow view, right, of the company. It's, it's, it's a BU behaving as if it's a separate company and, and, and that it, so I, I think there is some social pressure to be brought to bear. Um, and I think that lands firmly in the lap, that social pressure and the control of that sort of thing. And, and you know, not coordinating that sort of thing should be a taboo. But the, the person that actually sets that tone is the CEO. Right. If yeah, you don't have the support of the CEO, in reality, like day to day, right? In every little interaction that they they see, if they're not seeing you know security mentioned, and you're seeing these new services thrown up, um, then um, then that's a that's a problem. That, that's a yeah. problem, and it's hard to be successful in that environment, right? It's interesting that you should bring that up. We did our own survey recently, and we did find that you know despite all of the headlines um, about ransomware and, and business interruptions that of the 600 senior IT leaders that we interviewed, only 18% said that security was a board level issue, yeah. right? Like that type of coordination, which sounds like madness to me that in this day and age, it's that low. Well, you know why? I, I totally agree with you, and, and here's why. And it's not just because I'm, <laughs> I'm former CISO and I've got the scar scars all over me, um, but um, but I, I think it's because it, what I find interesting about it is, especially for a public company, mm -hmm. the board members are fiduciaries. That's right. And because they are fiduciaries, they can be individually sued presented with a risk and they fail to act or track right on that risk or facilitate so they aren't management they aren't the c-suite right they shouldn't be sticking their fingers into day-to-day -day, you know behaviors 
But at the same time, if they are presented with a risk, they essentially are responsible for it. So I have this whole thing <laughs> that I go through when I am looking for a new job as a CISO and I want to go back to career defense that, that says, that talks about the things we just talked about. Do I have access to the CEO? How far away in the reporting structure am I? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, but access is key, right? And, and support is key. Um, the other thing is, do I have access to the board? Do I report to the board um, quarterly, preferably? Mm -hmm. um, if the answer is no to both of those questions, then eh, I just I, I, I'm not interested in having that job, right? Because you're not going to be set up for success, right? Exactly. I mean, it, it, the support is just simply missing, and and mm -hmm. it's interesting too. I'll talk to the BU heads. I'll ask if they don't offer up, you know, me me talking to the heads of the business units. Um, also talking to legal counsel and the CFO uh, personally, right? Um, those are critical relationships. And if you can't, if you get the feeling that somebody's going to blow you off <laughs> during the interview process, then again, you're, you, you're unlikely to be successful completely. Like if one BU is out of, out, out of uh, you know, just simply not supportive. Um, whereas the others are, and the CFO is, and the general counsel is, and the CEO is all in, um, and you get to talk to the board. Um, if all that's lined up and there's just one BU that's kind of out of G, then then yeah, I'd consider taking, taking such a job. But I guess the point is, um, as a potential security leader, you should be interviewing them as well as them interviewing you. So don't be so eager to go <laughs> to go get the job. Um, be more um, circumspect about like and realistic with eyes open about um, how much support you're going to get. Right. Do they need a CISO because someone told them they need a CISO and they're just right. going to fill a gap? <laughs> yeah. Or is it, is it like, no, I need to fundamentally alter the security of this organization? If it's truly just to check the block and you have no support around you whatsoever, then I view it as just a potential scapegoat for anything that might happen. Right? Yeah, we've said it before, chief information or chief incident scapegoat officer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, this actually, this actually uh, is a great segue into, I think, the last topic here, which is, you know, we're seeing a lot of companies really looking to 2021 and more to the point, really trying to focus on growth because they're pretty much trying to make up for this year. Right. You know, they've got a, a buy from their shareholders for 2020, but they're going to have to prove it in 2021. So what are you seeing as uh, challenges or pressures facing security teams? Because as we all know, there's like a risk and revenue mm -hmm. um, tug of war also inside of most companies. Um, so I'm kind of sad to report that in some cases, uh, if there is a security team or was a security team at a particular company, in some respects, um, those individuals who ha had been on the security team have been redeployed essentially over in uh, to um, perform standard IT uh, behaviors, mm. right? There's and some... That's like a, as a result of cost cutting or... Um, yeah, and, and the, again, lack of expertise, not wanting to add another uh, person or hire a vendor, right? 
on the on the cost side. So, <clears throat> so I've very commonly seen VPN replacements with application portals, um, which are more secure. I totally advocate for this, right? Don't give general network access to everyone. Right. Um, just give them, you know, a direct link to the applications they require. Um, just makes total sense from a security point of view. So that that's a plus. But it's not the IT infrastructure people who are often doing that. It's in some cases because it has a, a good benefit for security as well as um, work efficiency. Um, <clears throat> they're having the security team do it. So they're plucking people out of the security team and, and moving into that. So I've seen a lot of that. Um, on the positive side, um, they are putting in those portals, right? Which, which um, is for the reason I just described, the, a very positive uh, thing um, in general. Um, I'm also seeing a, an increased focus at the PC level Mm -hmm. People are asking questions about, hey, I had this antivirus for you know 10 years. Is this company still any good? <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting that question a lot. Um, I think it's partly because of my time at CrowdStrike and people assume that I would know. Um, but also um, because uh, people are re-examining, right? They're turning over rocks. They're looking to cut costs too. Um, at the same time. So they're trying to do two things at once uh, in mm -hmm. a lot of cases, cut costs and improve security in the process. And in some cases, those goals align. Um, like in the case of that uh, application you know, portal, I think that's a positive thing. In some cases, it doesn't. Like those cheap old antiviruses are in fact cheap. Right. Know, three or $4 a seat, um, but their efficacy is low. And, and and dragging on performance when you know ninety percent of your workforce is trying to VPN anyway, and, and you got yeah. like those update files dragging on their computers. Yeah, and that's that's a, a, a serious serious issue. But um, you know other types of uh, capabilities that exist at the endpoint do and you know ED, EDRs are are one mm -hmm. that actually can detect anomalies. Um, and are more flexible than signature-based systems. And so they catch more and stop more. Um, they also tend to contain um, uh, behavioral and analytics uh, capabilities for not just the software that's running on the PC, but also the behavior of the user. Um, and that I think is important, you know, mm. so I logged on to the application portal, or no, I logged on to the VPN and I've never ever tried to touch um, the production um, online online production environment uh, mm -hmm. before, mainly because I'm a finance person, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And uh, and so even though I wasn't successful, I tried to go touch it this time. Yep. Mm. So, but, but antiviruses generally don't find right. anything like that. Uh, EDRs can now. Yeah. Um, and certainly there are certain analytics, um, central analytics uh, that replace the old idea of a SIM that can actually sort this out as well. Um, so when you get so, a call from the IT team saying like, I noticed you tried to get into the root directory. Are you having trouble? <laughs> the yeah. folder you... Well, and if it's just a one-off 
person, it depends on the policy of the company. Sometimes they'll just stomp on the person's credentials and force them to call in. Mm-hmm. Right. In other words, lock them out, and, you know, give them a message that says call. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, there's, um, I think there's, there's a lot of things changing. Some are positive, some are less positive. But I think through this time, it's going to be, it is harder now to connect with all your users. Like I spent a lot of time um, almost preaching, not really try to stay away from preaching too much, but to the masses and the company, Um, even to the point of having like a two minute video or a three minute video of me talking to everyone during annual security training <laughs> um, so that they can see my face and they can see my intent. Uh, they can see my sincerity. Um, they can see my empathy for their, um, their situation in terms of you know, how hard they have to work. Um, so that in other words, they understand what the point of information security is and internalize it. It's hard to right. do that. This is, this is not the the team that's going around the company just trying to make your life harder. <laughs> well, and it's also, and right, it, in some ways it's always gonna feel that way uh, to them, but it, 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 feel, it, it feels less that way if there's an actual face attached to it, right? right. Um, like for example, I love the help, help desks, especially the physical and person ones, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like where you have to bring it in. Because you can, if you have a problem with your computer, you're suddenly establishing a relationship with the help desk person, right? Well, I think that goes back to what you were saying about the the entirety of cyber conflict is a human problem. But I mean, that is also true on the defensive yeah. side, right? If you know the people in IT, yeah. you know that they're not just these overlords trying to <laughs> make you jump through hoops to Well, and, and most... People at companies these days, I mean, have some sort of um, company stock uh, options mm-hmm. or ability to buy them. And um, so they are shareholders too, right? So they, you know, if you point that out and you just say, hey, listen, you know, I'm trying to, you know, protect, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to protect, I, I want to make it so that you can work, but I also want to make sure we don't lose our, you know, lose everything we have or we don't lose our reputation with our customers right? Um, I don't want us to become a pariah, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, It usually works better. That's good. That's a good note. Um, Cool. Well, that's about the the time that we have. I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to to dial in here. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Cool. All right. Well, thanks so much. And uh, I hope we get to talk again soon. Yes. And um, I'm sure we will. And have a great weekend. Bye. Um, see you. All right. And that wraps another episode of the Zero Hour brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. Many thanks to Kai Crowgetty for sound design and post-production, to Matthias Cefaletti for our theme music, and as ever, to our guests for lending their valuable time and expertise and insights. Stay safe, stay strong. This is the Zero Hour signing off. Until next time.